But what's funny about writers' rooms is that the things that are said are off the wall. Oh, it's terrible. Because you're finding the line of comedy. Absolutely. Comedy's all about finding the line. A thousand percent and to, true. to find the line, you got to go way over the line and yeah. then come back and then sneak it back. The things we said in the writers' room have been living color. I mean, all of us would have been a, 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 <laughs> arrested multiple times <laughs> over, multiple over the course times. of many years. They could excavate it now and we'd be arrested right now, in fact. Hey, everybody, that is the voice of uh, the great Larry Wilmore. Holy cow. Uh, first of all, it's it's episode 80 of this podcast experiment. Thanks for thanks for coming along for this journey. We had no idea we'd be making 80 of these things. And it's so fun meeting you all, uh, some of you, at the shows and hearing the feedback about the relationship between the material worked out on the show and then what ends up being in the final show. It's, it's a cool sort of meta experiment. Um, I'm out on tour. Uh, if you want to see me, I just finished up in Los Angeles. I'm going to be in Pittsburgh. There's a few tickets left. Same with Cleveland. Same with Toronto, Atlanta, Cincinnati, Columbus, Detroit, Nashville, Mesa, and Salt Lake City. All of that's on Burbigs.com. Um, and New York City, I'm not allowed to say, but there's going to be an announcement very soon. The first people to know will be the Burbigs.com mailing list. Uh, just, uh, just join me on there. I, I don't send out a lot of emails, but when I do, they're, if, you, if, you, if you like my shows, you're the first person to know about any kind of announcement that there might be about a show. An announcement. That's all you need to know. Um, Larry Wilmore is a, he's a legend. He's a, he's a legend of writing and performing and acting. He was the creator of the Bernie Mac show. He was the uh, creator and star of the nightly show with Larry Wilmore. Uh, he was you know part of the creative team of Insecure and the PJs and In Living Color in the office. And kind of on and on and on. He's a correspondent on The Daily Show. He is a legend. I love our conversation. It gets really in the weeds on stuff. That for the creatives who listen to the show, I think you'll really dig. Because he just does not hold back. There's a lot of moments where I thought, did he just say that? (laughs) Enjoy my chat with the great Larry Wilmore. You and I were talking at opening night of my show at the Mark Taper about how you had been an actor at the Mark Taper, and it was like one yes. of the first things you did. Right. And I was thinking, like, because there's tons of creatives who listen to the show, and I think the relationship between being an actor slash improviser yeah. is super related to writing. Oh, but I was for curious sure. what you thought you think because it's similar to what you're talking about with voices. Oh, absolutely. I, it's all interconnected. I always advise people. Do as much of that stuff, especially if you're doing it in college. Yes. Like take the writing classes, acting classes, directing classes. And if you've been in the business long enough, especially as an actor, um, if you know anybody that works in casting or that, sit in on some casting oh sessions. Oh, my God, yes. And you will start to learn to take so much attention off of, you know, the crap that you think is important and just really just be yourself more. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's crazy how much we're not ourselves. But what do you think... Are we in the We're rolling. Right We're now? rolling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. this is great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, We're straight talking. in. Oh, let me get to mine. Yeah, yeah. So 
Wait, start over. No, so I'm tell just me. <laughs> well, tell me this. Yes. So, like, what did you learn from acting that you feel like on a regular basis you employ in writing? Well, um, I go back and forth on it, you know, of course. But to me, I think the biggest thing writers can learn from acting and what was required in acting is that you need conflict. Mm. You know, and if an actor ever comes up to you, especially in television, they just don't understand what's going on. Usually there's not conflict for them. Yes. They're just talking heads. Yes. And so they, you know, there's nothing happening. And acting is you try to get something and something is in the way of getting it. Yeah. That's really what acting is. Yes. You have an objective and there's something blocking that objective. There's yes. a conflict. Yeah. It's the basis of all acting. Yes. You know. And understanding that as a writer, you know that your characters have to be doing something and not just reacting to something. Yes. Not, or not just behaving. Like, it's not enough to be r realistic or naturalistic. Yes. You know, I always feel you have to be hyper-realistic, you know. Yeah. Hyper-naturalistic. That can be the cover, it looks like, but there has to be an engine there of action that's working. And... Actors who are really good understand that, and so that's where their radar is going to go up. Yes. It's like, I don't understand what's going on here. What they really mean is, I don't have a conflict here. You yes. know, I really don't have, what am I trying to get? Like, what do I want here? That's the cliche, is mm -hmm. actors, actors kind of complaining, what's my motivation? But actually, right. you do need a motivation. Completely. You need to do something Absolutely. for a reason. If you're doing Completely. it for no reason, it's not worth watching. Absolutely. So it's not enough to be naturalistic, as some people think, to to behave as if it's real life. There's a hyper-realism, hyper-naturalism, where something else is at play. You're elevating what real life is. Even if you're making it look real, yeah. you're elevating it. So that means something else is at play. So, so there has to be an action in there if you want it. I always give this kind of advice if you want it to be worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not interested in it being worthwhile, then that's a different thing. But if you want to elevate material, you always look for that. You know? Well, it's funny because you worked on The Office. Yeah. And The Office arguably is supernaturalistic. Yes, absolutely. But is there that can conflict? Be a trap. Yes. Is there conflict in The Office? Absolutely. What's the conflict? Well, you have a boss who, his desire is to be loved, and the conflict, the obstacle is himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Yes. Yes, the obstacle, of course, is himself. And it gets in the way of Michael everything. Scott's enemy is Michael Scott. The moment you're at in that office, you are ducking all of your interactions with Michael oh Scott. Oh, my God. So, I, so I, there was, is, I'll never see that show the same way again. There's conflict as soon as you step into the office. Right. You know? And in individual stories have their own conflict. You know, with Jim in that first season, of course, he's in love with he's this girl love. that he can't be in love with. Yes. That's so right. he has a conflict every forbidden, time he's in forbidden a conversation. Forbidden love. In a conflict every time he's in a conversation with right. him because he can't reveal his true feelings. Right. And that's a conflict. You know, so even though it looks casual, he's really he really wants to say, I love you, but he can't. Yeah. So how's he gonna say that in ways where he's not really saying that, where he's not putting himself on the line, he's not risking his heart, he's holding on to himself. All of Jim's scenes in those first season, and he's doing that. He's not yeah. just talking. He's, I can't tell you how I really feel about you. That's what he's saying in every single scene. Yeah. So I always say, like, when you know what a show is about, the DNA of that should be in every scene of the thing. Yes. The DNA of it. So you could pick out any scene, and, you know, the DNA should be in there. Like when I did Bernie Mac, I always said, the what the Bernie Mac show was, 
um, children are terrorists. I don't negotiate with terrorists. That's so you know? funny. And you could pick any scene out of there. <laughs> and that's and what it's about. That's It's in there somewhere, the, the non-negotiable stance with terrorists, you know. I love mm-hmm. Bernie Mac's show, and, like, one of the things that I think is so impressive about it, and I feel like we probably borrowed from it when we made Sleepwalk With Me, the movie, I talk to the camera quite a bit. Right. And Bernie talks to the camera quite right. a bit. Which, of course, is an older convention. It's right. an older convention, right. certainly. Yeah. I mean, it's his oldest time. But, like, but he did it so well. Yeah. And it's also, like, speaking of naturalism, it's so naturalistic. It's like, yes. how much of that is him but riffing is just go? Was that? <laughs> I said, is it the? <laughs> <laughs> is he just going? Or is he? No. Well, no, he's on script? Absolutely. No kidding. Yeah, in fact, I encouraged Bernie. I said, Bernie, if you want to just, I called it Bernie Mac this. If you want to Bernie Mac this. <laughs> You know, take it. He'd say, "Okay, no problem." He would usually do it verbatim, but the purpose of that was really an id scene. It was really expressing his id. That's where he says, "I want to kill those kids." Right. It's what he can't say in the scene. Well, that's so he really ha- interesting. So he has to say it to us. You know, he's expressing. It's not exposition. It's not meant for that. Right. It's to be expressive of what the things he can't say somewhere else. So that's his space to say that, to communicate directly with the audience. Yeah, the direct communication always serves a different purpose in different yeah. things. So in yeah. Sleepwalk With Me, it was we got into the test screenings and people, mm-hmm. this stuff that in a monologue where I talk about jumping through a second-story window and all these very serious things, they right. were getting laughs on stage because people can see yes. I'm okay. Yeah, wow. When I got it in the movie... Yeah. In the test screenings, they weren't laughing at all because wow. they're like, we don't know if he's okay. So we added in this me talking to camera, driving around, and they're like, well, clearly he's in the present. He's, he's, he seems right. like he's okay with this, and so we know he's okay. That's interesting. It's funny because sometimes it can be the opposite. So like Bernie Mac, when I when I watched his set, you know, and when he would talk to the audience, he'd say, Charlotte, you know what I'm talking about, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina, whatever. Yeah. And that's why I got America. You know how Bernie Mac feels. Because <laughs> he was dressing them as like a one thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know how Bernie Mac, you know Bernie Mac doesn't mean that. But in the act, this is what he says. He says, I believe you should be able to hit a, a child in the stomach or the oh throat. Oh, my God. Yeah. The stomach or the throat, right? Oh, my God. It was one of the funniest things ever. And he says that the audience is laughing hysterically. In the pilot. yeah. There's a scene in the pilot where they're in the store, and he kind of spanks the kid on his butt. No big deal. We got worse when I was a kid. They could not take that, the uh, studio oh. and the network. They wanted me to take it out. They changed wow. it. It was too harsh. Here's a man who, the reason why he has a show is because he said he wanted to, children should be hit in the stomach or the oh throat. God. They're all aware of that. Yeah. And they're afraid of that type of thing on his yeah. behind. I'm like... It's Bernie Mac. Are you kidding me? Yeah. This is the person who's doing the show. So, but because it was so real at that point, as opposed to, so it's the opposite of yours. When they only had to imagine it, yeah, it's funny. But when they saw it, it was too much. That's really interesting. With Bernie, you know, because I've lost, I've lost friends. Mitch Hedberg, Greg Giraldo. Yeah. So you funny. lost Bernie. I mean, it's like, yeah. How do you? And in my show, of course, Old Man in the Pool is all about death and losing friends yeah. and losing family. It's like, and you, you've lost your brother. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, how do you cope with that? What is your, <laughs> do you have any, do you have anything on that? I don't know. I mean, I mean, one of the cliches is, you know, time, you know, and I really think it's really all you got, you yeah. know. 
in your favor. What I've tried to do specifically for my brother, because he was in my family, yeah. is I've tried to pour good stuff out, you know, rather yeah. than look for good stuff to come in. You know, so being active in that. So even in my work, I'm trying to see if it, make sure people feel better after something than yeah. before, you know. Yeah. Looking I'm so I'm looking to put light out there. Yeah. And looking for those places because I feel that helps me. Yes. You know, but honestly, I think it's different for everybody and it depends on the type of loss, you know. Yeah. Um each one is so different. And loss is a it's a difficult thing to deal with. Um but loss does have a journey, you know. It's funny because I wrote this philosophy years ago. I won't get into it too much here. But a lot of times people, I think, deal with false loss. Yeah. And false loss is something that feels like loss, but it never goes away. And they yeah. always hold on to it. But that's not really loss. That's something else. Because loss actually does have a journey, you know, does have a path. You know, yeah. there is mourning. There are ups and downs in it. And there's, like people say, the the stages of grief. They don't say there's one stage of grief that goes on forever. Right. <laughs> you know, they, right. they say they're the stages of grief. Right. You know, but like when you see people who are angry about something and they hold on to that, that's not true loss or true grief. That's something else. Something else, I believe, is being triggered there. And there's there needs to be an investigation of what that thing is and not associated with the other. And that's what you call, you call that false loss. I call it false loss. That's not really loss. How do you define that? Can you define that? Because I'm really interested by that. Yeah. So I, I thought, oh, you have like a yeah. whole thing on it. Sure. Like, um, let's take showbiz. You know, if somebody— sure didn't get a job, you know, yeah. that they someone else got, and they're angry about that thing. They feel like they lost something, but they didn't. That's not really a loss. Right. You know, that's that's right. a that's a false loss. Yes. But they might hold on to that for Yes, with anger. Exactly. Damn it, I didn't get the thing. It's not fair. Life isn't yes, fair. And they think they've lost something. They think yeah. something was lost. Right. You know, so they use the same language, but it's not. That's not what loss is. You know? <sighs> And That's so, profound. That's deep. So there's confusion in how to deal with that. So when you associate different things in the same way, there it's hard to get past things because you have emotional confusion about things. You know, what's well, the flattening of failure? Yes, and sadness. Yes, and and those things. There's nothing wrong with those things. No, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. They're just feelings. Yeah, but they're yeah. No, the, I I definitely find like. It's uh, yeah. There's there's a definitively a difference between losing your best friend or your brother mm-hmm. and losing a job that you thought you should get or sure. something like that. And it's like, yeah, you're right. One of them never goes away. Mm-hmm. It's funny because yesterday I was at the funeral for my my best friend since high school. His dad passed away. And we were at his funeral, and yeah, I thought. And he's my friend is not in showbiz. You know, he, you know. As they say, he works in the regular world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. civilian. Yeah, civilian, a layman, as yeah, yeah. it were, you know. And uh, we've been best buddies forever. And, you know, he's not a writer or anything like that, but he wrote one of the most profound lines in The Eulogy for His Dad, where he said, um, I'm going to be, he said, my dad's death is going to be fuzzy for me, but his life is going to be a vivid memory. Oh. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. That is profound. I yeah. mean, the way that he's choosing to handle loss, I guess you could say, in that type of thing, is he's not focusing on the thing that is giving him grief. Yeah. You know, he's what's going to be vivid for him is the thing that gave him life. 
I love that. That's crazy. It's such a good line. Yeah, no, And just absolutely. even the word fuzzy, I thought, yeah. you know, as a writer, I have to critique. I'm yeah, like, yeah. that's a good word. <laughs> good word choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, could, do you think you could have used cloudy, maybe? No, fuzzy's good. Fuzzy's Some, good. Yeah, someone yeah. said something recently <laughs> about writing where I was like, oh, my God, that's absolutely true. Where they're, they're basically, they, it, someone was paraphrasing their writing process as being in the final, you know, 20% of a script I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I just cut, you know, a couple hundred words. Find a couple hundred words, and I thought, I thought, <laughs> just arbitrary. Yeah, well, no, just like, oh. just like trim the fat oh, and find wow. like, how do I get to it faster? How do yeah. I, how do I make this tighter? I just thought, oh, that's a really good, and that's kind of like word choice in, in that sense. Like you, yeah. where you obsess over words and like, do I need this? I think about this with my show all the time. Yeah. It's like, do I need that tag? Yes. It's like the the joke is getting this, the tagline's getting this, and the yeah. second tag's getting this. Well, the first tag and the second tag could probably go away. Yeah. Because if the joke's getting this, then right. I should just move on to the next thought. I know. It's easy to get laugh greedy or laugh joke greedy. greedy or line greedy. You're, I love watching you, Mike, because I don't know if you consider yourself a wordsmith. But the words you choose are so good. Oh, thanks! It's, I obsess over it. Obsess. It 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 pays off. Thanks. You know, but you have what I call casual drive-bys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, thanks. Where, you know, <laughs> the joke comes out and they laugh, and then you have a casual drive-by <laughs> right as they're laughing. They have no idea this gang member is going to come up and pop, pop, pop. You know? That is so funny. They, they've just been distracted by this joke, but you know what? Pop, 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 oh pop. My God. Just a few lines. Are, it's so fun to watch. Thanks. You know? Yeah, no, I meant the world that you came. I, I just admire the stuff that you do that you do so much, and you're so prolific. I'm just like, when I look at your IMDb, it's oh, like, thanks, man. you know, between Insecure and Blackish and Bernie Mac and Living Color, it's like, it's just one of those IMDb's where you're just going, like, what? When? <laughs> but when? <laughs> when did it happen? Was he 90? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> when, did, when did you do all that stuff? I know. It seems like it, but, you know, when you're doing it, you know how it is. You just do it, you know. Um, but it's funny. I've always been obsessed with words, I guess, even more yeah. so than sentences. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I get that. Yeah, the words are interesting to me, you know. Like, I love it when people... When I say something and they say, oh, you mean like blah, blah, blah. I said, no, I chose the right words. It's like the words that I said, you know. That is. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's what I meant to say. Well, that, that's why it's funny. It's a funny moment historically because there's a massive discussion of both comedy mm-hmm. and linguistics. Yes. Right now, right? Right. And there's, this, there's a big thing of like. You can't say this word, right. but you can say this word. And right. You can't say this, but you can't say that. Right, exactly. Um, I always ignore that stuff, you know, because I'm like, we have words for a reason, you know, so you can use them. In fact, John Oliver and I, one of the funniest uh, sketches we did on Daily Show, my favorite, I should say, was where their city council in New York wanted to ban the N-word. You yeah. Know? And we tortured him, and it was so funny, you know. And we just, of course, when you tell little kids you can't say anything. In fact, that was one of the things that I said. So this is what I said to the guy, one of the pieces of it. Um, I say, his name is Leroy. I go, Leroy, come on. If you tell kids you can't use the N-word, all day long they're just going to go, nigga, 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 nigga. And I said it like, literally said it to him about 40 times. <laughs> yes, yes. And you see his face like not knowing what to do. Because to me, his whole point is like, why are you banning words? It doesn't make sense. Right. I don't understand this, you know. 
And also there's this weird thing where where also if you ban words, especially in literature, mm-hmm. you lose the historical context. Oh, absolutely. I just think that's which wrong. Is, yeah. Which is dangerous. Right. Yeah. You forget about the historical context of where the things came from. Right. And that author wasn't looking for a co-writer at the time. <laughs> you know? It's like, when did you when did you become the co-writer? You know? Oh, oh I saw you change. I didn't. Why did you change that? Nobody said change that. I chose the right word. You know, it's crazy. You know, the people think they can do that. You know? That's that's really interesting way to look at it. Yeah, the um, it's interesting with conflict though, because you're saying like conflict is the thing that's necessary for actors. It's necessary for writers. And mm. when we were talking about on your podcast about how you've done some autobiographical stand up over the years, but you're reluctant to do right. it a little bit. I know. But I think part of it is. Yeah. You have to air your own conflict. Yeah, I know. You're right. Because yeah. fundamentally, like, when I when I yeah. get on stage, I, I talk about, generally, I talk about my conflict, my love and conflict with my wife and yeah. my daughter, and my love and conflict with my brother Joe and my yeah. family and my parents. Yeah. And it's like, I vet that with my wife and daughter, and I vet it with Joe. Joe collaborates right. with me, and Jen collaborates with me often. But I don't, I don't vet it with my parents. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's conflict. Yeah. So it's like you have to come to grips with this idea of, as, yeah. as an autobiographical writer. is like, well, am I going to air the conflict or am I not? I know. It's funny because <laughs> I've done it in pieces. And having seen your act, I went back to my stand-up and I was thinking, I'd go, what was the stuff that I actually told about myself? You know? Yeah. And it's funny. At the time when I kind of really stopped doing stand-up, I was just starting to write that material. Yeah. I was just actually making the transition to really talk about myself, you know? Yeah. And to really... Before, I had kind of done it in sneaky ways, I'll say, you know? Sure. (laughs) You know, and that type of thing. Uh, My friend thinks this. Or I'll do it in satire. Yes, yes. That type of thing, because that's kind of the jokes that I like to do. Like, you know, I would say people always ask me what I'm mixed with, because I'm light-skinned, and they give me the... Are you... Mix something, you know? and I would always say, "Look, if I was a beer, I'd be a Negro light, and I'm a third less angry than the regular Negro." Like that was one of my favorite jokes. Like this is like years ago, of course, but that was me talking about identity. You know, yeah. and there's more that I want to talk about identity, but that was the way I talked about identity. Yes. You know, and not feeling like. I belonged in certain groups, including black groups sometimes. Yes. There's a whole slew of material there that's personal, but that was the joke for me. Yes. You yes. Know, that was more, you know, satirical or whatever, you know. So it is interesting. I am still, of course, very much interested in that type of thing and those yeah. types of observations because I really do like it a lot. And I'm always... I'm always so jealous of it whenever I see it. I go, God, man, that's so good. How come I can't talk about stuff? <laughs> you know, it's not, but it's not yeah. without it's not without its own conflict. Yeah, I mean, like I, I talk about like every piece of dirty laundry in my family, and it's like, yeah, I have to go home to the family. Yeah, did they like, ever get mad at you? Sometimes, yeah, I would say yeah. Com- I would say it comes up. Jenny Jenny described it recently as like once per show. We have like wow. a 24-hour span where we do not see eye to eye on what has occurred in the past. <laughs> right. So it just has to be an agreement that, sorry, this is for, this it's, is art. Well, yeah. Or this is art. for my show. It's art and it's a shared agreement of this is, this is my take, this is your take. Right. Why don't we agree on some version of this and this? Right. That's hilarious. Yeah. Isn't that a lot? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> because she's a writer, too, and, you know, she's a poet, and so, like, right. and, and she certainly takes liberties in her work, too, and I have to look at mm-hmm. that and go, all right. Well, especially if you're going to talk about her stuff. Yeah. Like, if, you know, talking about your stuff is one thing, but yeah. if you're going to talk about her stuff, like, yeah. how does she feel about that when you're... T- when you're telling us what you feel is her point of view on something or her stance on yeah. something. Yeah. You know, especially like when you talk about children, that's a dangerous area to talk about how a woman feels about having kids, you know. Oh, yeah, certainly. And, and yeah. that's why in part of the reason why in the new one I asked her to be a writer on it. And so she mm-hmm. was a credited writer on the new one show in her po- – I say her poetry, which is her point of view – Oh. Along the way, so like yeah. I'll, I pick up her poetry books along the way and read them. Yeah, and because honestly, like it be it reached a point in my writing process where I'm like, this just isn't two sided enough. Yeah, I mean that that's that circ- interesting. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. circles back to like what we were talking about in relation to how how you know writing in general. It's like if. If we're too focused on the single, the a single character, right? Then it can get boring. Absolutely. Which is why, like, if you go back to the office for an ex- for example, like <laughs> the conflict with Michael Scott and then the, the conflict with Jim and Pam. Yes. Those happening simultaneously right. is good for the. Is that how Ira Glass describes it? The story, good for the business. Yes. You did Bernie Mac, The Office, and Living Color, Insecure, The PJs, Fresh mm-hmm. Prince, like so many hits, like literally so many hits. Mm-hmm. What is the sign of when something's going to be a hit? Did you know those were going to be hits? No, I mean, each one is different. You know, some shows you joined it after the fact, but I got to be in a lot of shows from the beginning, which was nice too. People thought The Office was going to be a failure, by the way. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Writers, they were kind of snotty about it when I would tell them I was on The Office. And people, I remember even talking to Cynthia Littleton, who I've known for years. She's in that Variety Hollywood Reporter time. And, uh, and she had... I don't know if she said something snarky about it. I said, Cynthia, it's really going to be good. And she's like, well, we'll see. You know, and then yeah. like a year later or whenever it was caught on, I started to say, I told you it was yeah. going to be good. You know, But people were judging it. The English version was just so beloved for people that had seen it. Sure. And also the pilot episode, uh, Greg Daniels, who, who uh, developed it for the American version, it was uh, word for word the English one for yeah. whatever reason they wanted him to do that. I don't know if he wanted to do that, but they want him to do that. And it just didn't fit Steve Carell oh, interesting. the way that that fit Ricky Gervais, who Ricky Gervais could say the worst things in the world. <laughs> yes. And he not only was trying to get love, he was also the worst human being. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> where, <laughs> where Steve Carell's not the worst human being. That's not good casting. Oh, interesting. He's too, he's too nice. He's too lovable. And so we had, he had to be dirtied up a little bit. You know, so if you look at the very the first six episodes, his hair is kind of slicked back. Interesting. You know, and he the that pilot episode. If you look at the pilot episode, there's nothing likable about that character at all. Oh, that's interesting. In fact, easy to be rejected. It just didn't come off as well, especially in the pilot. And we were keenly aware of that writing it. You know, yeah. that Steve is just more likable. The second season, Greg, um, as a note, sunnied him up a bit. You know, he yeah. he just gave in. 
Gavin is not quite the word, but he just acknowledged that Steve Carell is this. Yes. <laughs> you know, and we wrote to that more also rather than writing the Ricky Gervais version of it where he really is cretinous. I mean, there was no redeeming feature <laughs> at all. I mean, but it works for him. Like one of the funniest scenes that he ever did, he shows up on a blind date. And it's like the timing is impeccable. As soon as his head turns to see this woman who's like a bit overweight or, you know, wasn't quite his type, you know, as soon as his head turns, he goes, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, yeah. <laughs> Just, like as soon as he makes eye contact with oh, her, God. oh, for fuck's sake. And it's the funniest thing in the world. But he can get away with that, you know, yeah. because he's a terrible person, you know. <laughs> yeah, it feels like an it feels like a very real extension yeah, I mean, I, when I say terrible person, his persona is yeah, that. Yeah, that's yeah. what that's what the actor gives off. Yeah. But Steve Carell doesn't give that off. It's like, why is he being so mean to her, you know? You've worked in so many writers' rooms. Do you feel like, what was the biggest argument you remember having in a writers' room? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Argument. Hmm. Could have been artistic. I mean, it could have been personal, but like... Yeah. You ever been were you ever in a room where you're like, no, 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 it can't end that way. And someone's like, yeah, it has to. See, here's the thing about writers room. Writers want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna argue about the ending. <laughs> they might argue about the beginning, but no one's gonna argue about the ending. <laughs> no one's taking that amount of time. They are trying to get home, you know. Um because you work crazy hours in the writers' room. I mean, Absolutely, I think some people don't realize. Some shows are very abusive too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some some people don't realize when they're like, "I want to be a TV writer." It's like, yeah. do you? They don't know what they're signing because... up for. <laughs> yeah, they really because, don't. I mean, I hear stories. People oh, it's work terrible. fourteen, fifteen hours. Oh, it's in the worst. Rooms. And go back to Fresh Prince. I was only there for one season. I didn't even last the whole season because I quit uh, part of the way through. But the showrunner, who was Will's manager at the time, Jeff Pollock, he's passed away since then. But he had never run a show before. And it was kind of—I felt it was kind of a coup getting the um, the writer who was running—what was his name? And I can't think of it right now. But he was— Was it, was it Borowitz? No, Borowitz. No. The Borowitz had been long gone. But— um. This writer, he's been doing a couple of years, but he had been, he was like a veteran, been around a long time, yeah. you know, that type of, that. really nice guy too. And he was kind of pushed out. I think Jeff wanted to run the show. That's my own opinion, but I think that's what he wanted to. Right. But was not equipped to do it. And we'd be there till three or four in the morning. And we felt he didn't want to go home. That right. That was his problem. And he'd be smoking cigars, you know, and drinking and stuff. And to me at that time, you know. Are you serious? Oh, it was terrible. What? And he'd give about? and he'd give the worst notes. He this is what he'd tell you to do as a writer. He'd say, Larry, could you you and uh just make a minute, you and Mike, can you guys go write some buttons for the scene? Go write uh. some what? Just can you go write some buttons for the scene? I go, what's the scene hasn't even been written yet? How oh my god! So just go do it. So we go into an office, not what what do you mean write buttons? That doesn't even make sense. And then he said, you know. Larry's not very good at writing buttons, <laughs> you know. Oh my God. Thing. But he was out of his mind. He was completely out of his mind. But it was so abusive. It just so many hours, you know. And how the show ever turned out in that last season to have coherent episodes is beyond me. Oh really? Oh, it's beyond me. It was just you know a testament to the show already being good enough that it could outlast that <laughs> that type of thing in that past in that last season. 
But writers usually argue more about stuff that have nothing to do with the show. Oh, that's interesting. Than about the show itself. Right. Because we're always they're heady people. Yeah, we're always distracted. You know, you talk about other things. Like sometimes the biggest challenge is getting to the writing. Because oh you may start the day where you're talking about the thing and this yes. thing, and then you're talking about that, and then people have to joke about it, and then this, and someone's going to deconstruct what you just said, and then this, that, and that, and then you go on a tangent, and now you got to show somebody on your computer what it is or whatever it is. And it's like, oh, fuck, if we, we need to order lunch. You know, we haven't even ordered lunch yet. So then you get the the lunch order, get that gone, and now the showrunner has to go take a meeting. So then you're going to fuck around because the showrunner's out of the room. <laughs> That's so funny. And That's the morning of a writer's room. But you know what's funny is, like, the things that are said are off the wall. Oh, it's terrible. Because you're finding the line of comedy. Absolutely. Comedy's all about finding the line. A thousand percent and to, true. to find the line, you got to go, what? over the line and yeah. then come back and sneak it back. The things we said in the writer's room of Living Color, I mean, all of us would have been a, a, <laughs> a, arrested multiple times <laughs> over, multiple over the course times. of many years. They could excavate it now and we'd be arrested right now, in fact. I think even some of the stuff that made yeah. it on air <laughs> yes, you should be exactly. arrested. You could be arrested Now for? the things that have made it on air. But the things we said, it were horrible things. Horrible. I can't even And we imagine. could not laugh hard enough. It, yeah. went, it was so fun. And not only that, we play acted also in that show because we worked all the hours in the night, too. So it'd be one thirty in the morning or something like that, and we'd rush to somebody's office because they were doing a little performance art, you know? Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> and, and I can't even describe what the performance art is because it was so vile. Right. You know, the stuff that we would do. But we had to do those vile things in order to keep our sanity. Oh, my gosh. In order, in order to write stuff that was appropriate for television. There's, But I've heard a lot of... Writers from writers' rooms say, yeah. like that era of yeah. writers' rooms being way ab- over the line yeah. is sort of gone. Do I you think, think that's oh, true? probably so. Absolutely, yeah. It, it probably has to be because right. there's too many there's too many snitches. You know, <laughs> like right. the iPhone is a snitch, basically. Yeah, yeah, know? for sure. <laughs> it's that window to the world. There were no snitches back then. You know, it all stayed in the room pretty much. Do you think that will have downstream negative artistic effects on the show? No, because I think people create differently. That's or, interesting. I mean, people just adapt. Absolutely. Yeah, Th- that's how creativity works. You know, yeah. set up set up a barrier. We're going to be creative. Yeah. Oh, the barriers, I can't make that kind of joke? All right, motherfucker, I'm going to be funny this way. <laughs> Fuck you. How about that? <laughs> You're absolutely right. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Because the nature of what we do is we're rebelling against something, you know. Right. Yeah, I always say whenever people have a conversation about comedy and, like, you can't say anything anymore. It's like, actually, you can say, like, 99% of what you want to say. Right. And you haven't said it yet. Right. <laughs> You yeah. haven't gotten there. So when you right. hit your limit, yes. when you get to the 99%, let's, re- let's reconvene. And I actually have no problem with the audience saying something, you know. Like, I don't have an issue when the audience says they're offended by something. I don't have an issue with Me that. Me neither. Um, because my job is to make them laugh, not to judge them for not laughing. Agreed. You yeah. know. So if 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 I'm at the point where I don't make them laugh, then that's... Apparently, it's not something I'm able to do anymore. Yes. You know, or I have to find the audience that I do or adapt or something. But it's not, 
who am I to say they're wrong because they're not laughing? That's not that. I never viewed comedy that way. We do it in a snarky way. That was a horrible audience. Oh, they just didn't yeah, get yeah, it. Of course, but that. But we don't really mean it because if we if we it's rare that somebody operates like that. It's the rare performer that really doesn't care. Yes, how the audience. But we the audience. we care deeply how the audience. Oh my feels. god! Yes, Kevin we live on that. I think right? about it every night. Yes, every exactly. night I do my show. I think about how the audience reacted to every single word. Yes, we want that. We want them to react favorably and everything. You know. Um, so, yeah, so when they say that, to me, it gives me a clue about something as opposed to I'm saying, fuck you, you don't know what you're talking about. You yeah. Know? So I'll investigate it. I go, oh, that's interesting, you know, or I might poke at it, but poking at it for laughs, you know, yeah. that type of thing. You know? I had a line and think of for jokes that it was too on the nose for the show. I took it out, but it's, we all have a right to offend and we all have a right to be offended. And those two ideas are not mutually exclusive. Right. It's just like it's that's it, not funny enough to be in the show, right? But it's like, but I think it's true, right? And I always say, well, part of my job is to offend, so yes, it, it appears as if I'm succeeding, right? <laughs> you know, that right. Type it of seems thing. like our our agendas are maybe at odds in in this way, or sometimes I would rather somebody be offended than to go. It was okay. Working It Out is brought to you in part by Helix Mattresses. Helix Mattress. Look, if, you, if you're if you a regular Working It Out listener and you don't have a Helix Mattress, I think that's on you. It's the official mattress of the Working It Out podcast. It's, it's the perfect mattress to lie there and write uh, a screenplay or an hour of stand-up comedy or a comedic essay. Unlike a lot of mattress companies out there, Helix owns its own manufacturing facility. Each and every Helix mattress is made in the USA by a team of skilled manufacturers and shipped directly from their facility to your door. If you weren't convinced already, I think that's gonna—I think that's gonna close the deal. Go to HelixSleep.com/slash/perbigs. That's H-E-L-I-X-S-L-E-E-P.com. That really put me to the test with, with spelling sleep. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So we do this thing called a slow round, and uh, a lot of it's based on memories. Do you have a nickname for your life that was from your life that was particularly good or bad? A nickname for, for you? A nickname for me? Yeah. That people called me? Yeah. Um, when I was young, people called me the professor. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's, which, a, that's a good nickname. I think it kind of, yeah, I think it kind of had an effect on me, you know. When you but, were a kid? Yes, because I wore glasses. <laughs> yeah. Simple I as love, that. I love kids are simple. Kid. Yeah, no, yeah, kids yeah. are simple. There's nothing else. Oh, look at him. He's the professor. <laughs> <laughs> he's the librarian. He's yeah, the professor. He's the teacher. That's all yeah, they yeah, yeah. was the glasses. The, the professor was one that stuck around for a while. No, yeah. professor's great. People yeah. still call you that? No, no. That's a good one. I don't know if anybody remembers. You still, you still yeah. go by that. Well, now I'm called the Oracle. Oh, really? My daughter, that she kind of coined that one because I have this weird thing where I've came up with this thing where I call, and I think people have written about this type of thing, of putting it out there yeah. where I have a vision for something and somehow it just comes about. You oh, know? interesting. And so Lauren calls me the Oracle. You know, that oh, I have that's it. interesting. Some people have said that, you know, which is kind of funny. Well, you've, yeah, because you've, you've had a lot of visions for things and the visions have come true which is like do you think there's a trick to that like do you if someone you know if someone's listening to this and they're like i want to <laughs> i want to be the oracle okay so that 
I came up with a term called putting it out there. Okay. Is the term that I have. And I did it not knowing what I was doing okay. when I was younger. Yeah. And then I went, what? And then I started to do it consciously, and it started to happen when I consciously did it. And it was just personal things, you know. And I'm like, what's going on here? And so it's not setting goals, and it's not hoping for something. It's, I call it putting something out there that is a fact. It's a fact of something that you put out there, something that is is to be as a fact. Yeah. You know, not as a hope, not as a desire, not as a goal. Yeah. So here's the first time it happened to me. When I was doing open mic night, you know, in comedy. This was at the Newport Beach Laughs Out, you know, which doesn't exist anymore. And um, and I remember looking at the marquee and said, you know what? In two years, my name's going to be at that marquee. Oh, my God. I just put it out there as a yeah, fact. Yeah, putting it out there. Forgot about it. Then the thing of putting it out there is not like I think about it every day yeah. and I make goals. Nope. Just put it out there as a fact. That's just the way it is. Two years later, I'm driving up to my own parking space. I'm headlining that week at the Newport Beach Laughs Out. And I'm about to go in. I like my car. And I go, oh, cool. They put my name in the marquee. And I go, Oh, fuck. That's wild. And it hit me right then. It was two years ago, like almost to that day that I, there? that I said. And I said, two, why did I say two years? I said two years. And it was almost two years to the, almost. Ex- it was certainly the exact month. And my name was on the marquee. And I was like, well, that's weird. You know, and I I just thought it was weird, you know, that yeah. that the time frame was so exact. You know? The Oracle. Like, it wasn't three years or four years where it's like, hey, I remember when I said in two years I'm going to have it. Yeah, sure, it happened in four years. But why the fuck did it happen in two years? Like, so that kind of messed with my mind a little bit. So I started doing it in different ways. You know, I did it with how much money I would earn. I remember when I started right. I said, in a certain amount of time, I want to make this, you know. And in that amount of time, not only did I make it, I got a deal that was that amount, too. Like, it almost the exact time I put out there, you know. And it was so weird, and and I've shared this with some people, too, but I believe what happens is when you put something out there as a fact, what it is is the choices that you make in your life are guiding you towards that. So you yeah. have guidance for choices. Yes. Where a lot of times people don't have guidance for choices. They're more arbitrary. Right. And it's easier to get rid of stuff that doesn't keep you on that track when you know what that track is. I think it's more about having clarity about where you're going than a magic trick about something appearing. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. There's another way of phrasing that, which— He's a great film. One of my favorite film directors is Miguel Arteta. And I played played a minor role in his film Cedar Rapids. I I auditioned for that. (laughs) Did you really? He called me in for that. (laughs) That's hilarious. And I met with Miguel and everything, you know. I even did an accent for, you know, the Midwestern (laughs) thing. I love the script. It was great. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's great. Great guy. And he gave me advice about when I I had written Sleepwalk With Me as a movie script. And I and I was like, I'm not sure what to do at this point. I have some investors and I have some producers, but mm-hmm. we don't. And he said, similar to what you're saying, put it out there. He goes, tell everybody the date that you're yeah, shooting. It's true. July 15th. It's true. And you say the train's leaving the station. Yes. And if you, and similar to putting it out there, I use that same expression. Yeah, the yeah. train's leaving the station. You want on the train? Yeah. It's leaving July 15th. I say the and same. And we made thing the damn movie. It's true. There's something about your energy and your spirit when it's out there it almost commits you to something so you almost don't want to do the things that aren't going to happen and i think it can be a coincidence the time frame yes. but i really think it's the focusing of your of what you're doing that makes those things happen yeah you know, that's what i believe if i'm going to take it out of the spiritual realm oh i love that yeah can you remember a time in your life where you were so scared you ran away 
It's probably happened many times. <laughs> um, yes, there was once, and I felt guilty about this, actually. Um, so I lived in a neighborhood where a lot of people had dogs. In mm-hmm. fact, we had an alley we called Dog Alley. Right? <laughs> See, here's the beginning of the story for stand-up. It sounds perfect, actually, mm-hmm. when I think about Dog Alley. What a Dog great Alley, year. perfect. And so uh, there was this guy, I think it was a racism thing, too. I think uh, there's this guy in the neighborhood who, I don't think he liked black kids in this neighborhood. Oh. But I think he intentionally sicked his dogs on us who were playing, the kids oh that were playing. Oh, my gosh. And we, everybody ran. And my This is here in California. Yes. Wow. And my brother and his friend got caught. I, th- I don't think my brother got hurt, but our friend did a bit. And, you know, I was older, so I, I got out of there fast, you know. But I always felt guilty that I didn't do something, you know. Oh, my you know. God. So the, the two kids got, like, sicked by a dog? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He sicked it on all of the kids, yeah. Oh, my no, God. No, it was terrible, yeah. Was and you terrible. sprinted away, and you were like, oh, yeah, were I like was a teenager. A oh, it was terrifying. Oh, I was a kid. I oh, was, you were a kid? I was in a teenager. No, no, no. We were about, this is eight or nine, that type of age. Well, that's a horrible memory. No, it was horrible. We were little kids. No, we weren't teenagers. We were little kids, yeah. And I felt guilty that I didn't help. Like, oh. I didn't, like... Like I, because they were they were littler than me, you know, yeah. that type of thing. But it was one of those things where like, oh, oh well, what am I supposed oh. to do? But I was so I, the fear was so vivid, Mike. Yeah. That that's the thing I remember is the fear because you were so afraid of dogs in those days, yeah. man. They, dogs were they were more a symbol of fear in those days more than anything else. Like one of the biggest movies in the seventies was about Dobermans, you know. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, you wouldn't now. It's Marley and me, you know. Right. Dogs are it's the original Jaws. Are your friends? Yes. But dogs were they were more a symbol of fear. I mean, I mean for black people there was no bigger symbol of fear no, than the German. Know. You know, this, those attack dogs. You know, yeah. so that type of thing was in your mind at that time. Those that type yeah. of imagery. So that's horrible. So that was your. You're telling me that was your neighbor who had those dogs? It wasn't a neighbor, someone who lived in the neighborhood. And but he wasn't just, a direct neighbor. Did yeah. you see him around a lot or was just a No, occasionally. Thing? Occasionally driving and stuff, you know. Did you have weird neighbors growing up? We had pretty cool neighbors. Our neighborhood was like a, an extended family type of feel. Is that it right? Was, it was a black middle class at that time. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people who worked, like civil service people, my father was a probation officer during that time, yeah. and people had those types of jobs, the jobs that black men could get in those days, because yeah. there were a lot of jobs you just couldn't get. Yeah. You know, but the government became an opportunity for a lot of them to have more middle-class type jobs. Yeah. So you didn't have to be a janitor. You didn't have to be this thing. Sure. You know? um, so there were a lot of those type of people in our neighborhood, and our neighborhood turned out to be a big sports neighborhood, too. Yeah. So we had a lot of people who turned out to play pro sports and yeah. that type of stuff. Oh, really? Oh, it was crazy. Uh a few doors down from me. Oh, by the way, a lot of people were good, but then there were the extraordinary too. So a few doors down from me, Bill Duffy, who was all American basketball player, he played same year's manager Johnson. He's one of the top sports agents oh in gosh. the country right now. Two few doors from Bill was Greg Ballard, who played for the Washington Bullets. He won a championship oh, for them. Across the street from Greg, right on the corner is Cornell Webster, who played for the Seattle uh, Seahawks. He was a cornerback for them. You know, that was just our half buck. Well, that's like a Malcolm Gladwell outlier yes. situation. <laughs> that was just our half buck. But for me, I was really good in sports. My dad played college football. Oh, wow. Sports was a was a big thing for me. I ran track. I was really good in track and played other sports. But I had clarity about what it took to be really good, which was good. I was never delusional about sports because I played with the best people. That's interesting. Yeah, so by the time I was in 
high school, going to college, I knew what it took to be an elite athlete. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not 6'6 and this type of thing, you know. So I didn't have delusions, which I thought was really good. Because I was good enough to delude myself, you know, and that type of thing if I wanted to, you know. Can you remember a moment from your life that in hindsight changed the trajectory of your life? But at the time, you didn't even really know. Because here you are now. It's like mm-hmm. you have this, your resume. It's like the who's who of of classic television mm-hmm. and, and comedy. And it's like, mm-hmm. was there a moment where you look back and you go, oh, actually, if that didn't happen, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be doing this. I actually wrote about this. Yeah? Um, it was the summer that I sold books door-to-door when I was in college. Okay. And I didn't know if I really wanted to be in showbiz. I had tried a couple of things, but I wasn't sure. I felt like I was squandering my potential maybe to do something else. I was a really good student in school up until high school where I kind of threw my academic career away. My my home life was really a mess at that point, you know. Yeah. Um, my mom kind of had a nervous breakdown. My parents were divorced, that type of thing. So it was hard to just focus on. I, I had more of a escaping type of high school. <laughs> like theater was my escape. Yes. Sports was my escape. Yeah. It wasn't drugs or that type of thing, thank God, you know, because I knew a lot of people who that was their escape. So thank God it was productive things. But academics was not one of them. Yeah. Um, so I kind of squandered that road for me, which I always— thought I would be on. So I was very down about that. And I didn't know. Showbiz seemed like a fleeting thing. I didn't know if that could work, you know. Yeah. But I knew a couple of people. A good friend of mine was trying to be a writer and had done some things. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. He, he had done stand-up. And I always thought it was funny. I did, you know, like um, uh, talent shows and that type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But, you don't, but doing it for a living is different. Yeah. Right? And I was keenly aware of that. But I sold bookstore door one summer. It's this thing that you train for a week, like in Tennessee, and they give you all these motivational things to, which were fantastic, by the way. And uh, what were they? Do you oh, remember it was any fantastic! Of? Oh, it was great. You know, I still remember a lot of them. One stayed with me the whole time. It was one of the best things I ever heard because it's so true. It's like most people spend more time planning a two week vacation than they do planning their lives. Oh, <laughs> and I thought. That's amazing. Oh, I love that. I've told that to young kids, too, you know, because it's so true. The detail we'll put into something that will, you know. It's it's, finite and we'll probably forget about. Not that it's not a good thing. Yeah. As opposed to, and the level of detail and planning you would put into that. So what do you do with that detail and planning for your life? Yeah. And what you want to do in your life? That always stuck with me. Yeah. So you're selling books. Yeah. The the other was whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I thought, I've heard that before. I love yeah, it. I just, I did. Yeah, yeah, mm, bravo. Standing kiss. ovation. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Chef's kiss. Very yes. good. You know? And it was a really tough summer. I was at a crossroads. Um, I had a really tough year in school. I was a theater major, but I wasn't doing well in school. I was distracted. Um, I think I had a crush on a girl and she had a boyfriend. So even that wasn't working out. Yeah. You know, all the things that are going wrong. Yeah. You know, not, I was working at a gas station part time, but really not making any money. My life seemed like it was really going nowhere, you know. And, and I didn't know if I really wanted to even do showbiz for a living. And, and I, going into people's houses every day and doing that. And, and I kind of failed that summer, but I, I completed it. And in the essay, I talk about the whole thing, but I won't go into detail of it. But. For the most part, I went to many homes where I saw where the people were unhappy, and it was very apparent to me. And it seemed to me that a lot of that was choices that they had made probably at a certain point in their life where it took a trajectory. Like there's always a point where there's 
one or two decisions that put you on a trajectory. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean you have to stay in that, but trajectories are very difficult to veer from. Yes. You know, it's a trajectory. It's hard to get off of that. You yeah. know, that's that's the thing, you know. And so after doing that, I decided I made a, a pact with myself that I am going to do in life what makes me happy. Yeah. You know, and from that moment on, I feel like I've never worked, you know. <sighs> Never worked a day after that. You know, I've, I've done the thing, and I said, it doesn't matter how much money I make or whatever. I'm going to choose the road that's going to make me happy. And that's where all my successes come from that. And I tell people, I said, when I started stand-up comedy, I considered myself a success day one because I was doing the thing that I wanted to do. Everything else are just the things that are an example of my success, you know. But, I, f- I but feel exactly the same way. Success start, was day yeah. one. Yeah, success was right. day one for me, too. I worked the door at the Washington, D.C. Improv. <laughs> yes. And, like, when they started paying me 250 bucks a week to uh, MC, uh, I was like, forget about imagine? it. Can you imagine? It seems like drop so, the yes, mic. yes. Drop the mic. I'm yes. a huge success. Like, are you sure you want to pay yeah. me this? <laughs> yeah. And then when I started making 400 bucks a week uh, as a middle act, I was like, come on. Yeah. This is a great. I get to open for Mitch Hedberg. Are yes, you kidding me? Yes, My yes. hero. I you know, know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, yeah, no, that's that's profound what you're saying. It's So success was never a goal for me. I had already achieved it. Yeah. You know, so that was never a conflict for me in my yeah. life. I was never troubled about, oh, I got to make it. No, nigga, I made it already, you know. I'm already a success. Now, what do I want to do? I wrote this down, which is just based on, I mean, you were dealing with traffic coming in. It's, like, insane. But I wrote, Los Angeles is the only place I've ever been where you could type your destination into Google Maps, and it says it could be 15 minutes or it could be days. Yes, it's like true. It's, it's not even the same metric of time. <laughs> yes. It's, like, could be years. You ever thought about going to another city? Do you it's, have a boat? It gets depressed. It starts berating you. <laughs> Why are you even in Los yeah, yeah, Angeles? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know what, better yet, let me tell you the destination from the downtown Kansas to the <laughs> suburbs. You know what that is? It's five minutes. Yeah, How do you yeah. feel about that? Yeah, yeah. What's wrong with you, Google Maps? Why are you so against me? Yeah. <laughs> That's very funny. Los Angeles is, is... It's crazy. You really have to be committed to this town. Yeah. Because it's bananas. I always had an observation. This is like more of a a standard joke observation. You know, the New York, Los Angeles type of comparison. Yeah. Know? Um. Mine was the New York, uh, L.A. comparison really is exemplified to me the best in honking and, <laughs> yes. and, and how and how we honk our horns and what that honk means. Because the L.A. honk is very possessive. When a horn is honked behind you and you're driving, you're doing something that affects them in a possessive way. You're in my lane. Yes. You know, get out of my way. You're cutting me off. I was going over there, and that's my space. Yeah. What are you doing? It's very possessive. You yeah. Know? It's very selfish. Or, you know, whereas a New York honk is designed for your benefit. It's right. designed to help you. What the fuck's wrong with you? That light's green. Why yes. aren't you going? You know? Yes. <laughs> Why? Turn right there. What's wrong with you? They're all, it's there to help you out. It's there for your benefit. What do you think it says about the people in the city? Uh, New Yorkers are impatient that you're not doing something properly. Right. They're impatient about it. Yes. Yeah. And they, they don't have the time to talk to you about it. They just want you to learn it and do it. 
Where L.A., the L.A. is narcissistic by nature, so they're going to be thinking about themselves, you know, right. and what they're involved in, and you're slowing me down. What's right. wrong with you? you right. Know? There's something that has to do with them, yeah. it seems like. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of the nature of it, so. The, um, and then I wrote this down. This was based on something that happened. I, I did, uh, I was in Brooklyn. I was doing uh, Pilates in this little, like, office area shared office and this guy walks into the office and says to my instructor is the guy uh who teaches watercolor painting next door around and uh the, the woman who's teaching me Pilates goes uh I think he might be dead and I thought who do you know who you think might be dead <laughs> yes <laughs> and then it's a true story I don't even have punchline and then that guy leaves and she looks at me and she goes he's dead yeah, it was a wild one. So what, she she was and then she just wanted to let him down nicely. I don't know. It's a good question. Why she's she? I think he might she, be dead. I think he might be dead. I think maybe she didn't want to be the bearer of full bad news. Wow, you know what I mean? But it's still bad news. It is bad news. Any any way you she's slice it, she's giving him false hope. Yeah, he might be alive, but I think he might be dead. And then she looks at me and she goes, he's dead. <laughs> She's so cynical, too. <laughs> oh, my God. It was a pretty wild one. It was one of, you ever have this where, this, that's like an example of the setup is better than the punchline. Like, I yes. don't, that story's so crazy right. that when it happened, I go, I'm definitely writing it down. I yeah. don't know what to do with it. Well, something like that, is it then you're having fun about the character and not so much what the thing is, maybe? I think possibly. Yeah. And she tells you. Uh, that's going to be $150. You, say, you know, I think I might be broke. <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny. I might be broke. You know what's funny? Is maybe, maybe we'll end on this because it's kind of an open-ended question. I always ask people how they would describe me because I feel like the way we understand ourselves is mm. so often incorrect. Yeah, I agree you, with that. You know what I mean? So how do you think people describe you in a way that you wouldn't describe you? I don't know. That's a that's an interesting question, as you were saying. Um, like I said, my nickname was the professor. Like people think, like I'm this quiet kind of smart guy, you know, yeah. kind of conservative, these types of things, you know, uh, the professor type or whatever. And I can be. I'm very silly, you yeah. know. Like from my point of view, uh, I have a lot of interest, you know. Um, many people think I might be very uh, passionate about, you know. Uh, issues in that. I'm actually very open-minded about things because oh, I have a scientist brain. It's I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. So wow. I like discovering things more than I like saying this has to be so. Yeah. So I'm not on that side. I'm on the side of, oh, tell me more. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, I love making discoveries, you know, yeah. and that type. But people wouldn't think that about me unless, you know, they listen more to the stuff I do. Like, one of my hobbies is doing magic. You know, I'm a close-up yeah. magician doing that. You know, something I love to do. People wouldn't know that about me yeah. you know, or whatever. So people have this image that isn't quite that, but I understand what that is. So I realize, like, when I have acting parts, when it lines up with that, those are good parts for me. Yes. When it lines up with... What the audience is experiencing, yes. which goes back to our oh casting thing. Yes, you know, which is why when you're a young actor, you get frustrated. You think you can play everything. Not true. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yes. You can in college, maybe in school. Yeah, absolutely. But when the audience 
requires an expectation to be met, you know, it's different. Like, I could never do—I had a roommate, he was a comic, he, he had an act once where he started to do just really dirty material. Yeah. And, just, and it was hilarious, too. He was really clever about it, too. I could never do that stuff. The audience just did not accept it Yes. For me. They just did not accept it. So I just said, well, and I wasn't that interested in doing it anyway. Yeah. But sometimes I would have ideas for that. Nope. Audience like, sorry, Larry. We don't want to hear that from you. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? Why well, you know, not? So, so I, one, of the, one of the first interviews I ever listened to was was from the 80s with Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. On comedy with Jerry Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. And he says, the audience tells you what's funny about you. I agree with Jerry. Yeah. And if you're smart, you're listening. I agree again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, if you're interested in doing comedy, you're listening. Now, you can guide that to a certain extent, and you can push yourself like to be different and all that kind of stuff. Like we talked about Carlin, those people who evolved in that type of thing, but yeah. the audience still had to tell them. Yeah. You know, they still had to agree. Like with TV shows, I always felt like when you first, when you create and write a television show, when you are thinking of it and you're putting it down and you're actually making it, the show belongs to you, okay? Yeah. As soon as it's put out there, it's no longer it's yours. It's not yours. It now belongs to the audience and you become the curator for their show. Yes. And they will let you know when you're fucking up their show. Yeah. <laughs> my gosh. You become the curator for their thing. Yes. You know? That's a little bit like, I'm sure you've experienced that because you've given the audience something over the years and you're curating the thing you've given t- to them. Yeah. And they will let you know when you're not doing a good job of yes. curation. You know, it's not that you're not funny. It's like you're not treating Mike Birbigli the way that, that we think he should be handled right now. Yeah. You know, what are you doing with him? Right. With this thing that we love and we've right. dedicated we, our lives we, to, he belongs to, to laughing at. Yes, exactly. So the final thing we do is working it out for a cause, and basically we donate to an organization that you think is doing a good job. Mm-hmm. And then we link to it in the show notes and we encourage other people to, to donate. Do sure. you have anything? Um, sure. I'll go with um, Autism Speaks. Okay. Um, it was an organization I did some work for, I shouldn't say work for, but my son has Asperger's. And so it was an issue I really didn't know much about, you know, yeah. until he had it. That's how we learn about a lot yeah. of things, right? Yeah. And... You know, for in terms of, I'm not involved in the day-to-day operations of the organization, but I know that that's one of those organizations out there that really is committed to, you know, helping, you know, people out in this area in many different ways, you know. And it's it's one of those problems that I feel like in the last 20 or 30 years has exploded in our awareness of it. Yes. And in dealing with it, I feel like it's it's appearing more and more for whatever reason. Yes. Who knows? You know, I think more of it's being diagnosed, which is one thing. So yeah. it gives the appearance that there's more of it. But I also think there's more of it, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, it's autismspeaks.org, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give to them, and I'm going to put it in the show notes and encourage people to donate as well if they can. That'd be great. Well, thanks, Larry. I could talk to you all day. This is, like, this is the, fun. The, the, you're the oracle. You're, you know so Where? much stuff. No. See, here's the other thing. <laughs> See, here's the other thing. I sound smarter than I actually no, am. No, <laughs> I can't handle this. I've always told I'm not, you I'm that. Not gonna, I'm not going to give any credence <laughs> to this concept. This is, this is over. This is it's over. A, it's it's all off. fun. Working it out, because it's not done. Working it out, because there's no... That's going to do it for another episode of Working It Out. You can check out Larry's podcast, Black on the Air, 
which is on the Ringer Podcast Network. I was a guest on recently. We had a great chat on there, too. I mean, I think we had a couple crossover topics, but actually, I think it's a... If you like this hour of chat, I think you'll like that hour of chat. It's a, it's a, it's a good one. Um, thanks for listening. Working It Out is produced by myself along with Peter Salamone and Joseph Berbiglia. Consulting producer Seth Barish, associate producer Mabel Lewis. Sound recording by Steve Pearson and Josiah Cozier. Video recording by Nick Dimitrilakos, who's who I know very, very well and works with me, and I still might be messing up his last name. I Nick, I'm so sorry. Dimitrilakos. I don't know. I don't know, Nick. I'm sorry. Uh, you can see Nick's great photography on uh, Instagram. He shot a lot of those photos when I was in Los Angeles at CTG at the Mark Taper Forum. And you can follow him uh, on Instagram. He's credited there. You can link through. Sound mix by Shub Saren. Supervising engineer Kate Belinsky. Special thanks to Gary Simons. Special thanks always to my consigliere, Mike Berkowitz. As always, a special thanks to Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall, Jack Antonoff and Bleachers for their music. As always, a special thanks to my wife, the poet Jay Hope Stein. Her book, Little Astronaut, is available for pre-order now. It comes out in September. We actually just did a book event, Jokes and Poems, that we do sometimes in Los Angeles at Skylight Books amazing bookstore in Los Angeles. And it was so fun. I love her poems. They're so gorgeous. Follow her on Instagram, Stein. She might be a guest on the podcast soon. You get all the tips about this show here on this show. Special thanks to my daughter, Una, who built the original radio fort made of pillows. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. You know, maybe start a group text with your enemies and just write, hey, I know you all know each other, since you're enemies. Uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But in any case, I'm texting all 50 of you to let you know that this, po- <laughs> this is a podcast I listen to that I think you'd enjoy. Please do not block this text chain. If you like the podcast, uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm reading them. I'm reading them every damn night because we're working it out. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>